Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show... We're here in Australia, and we're going to launch some rockets. We're following two teams of scientists here to study a special pair of stars we can't see from most parts of the U.S. They're part of the Alpha Centauri system, the closest stars to us besides the sun. And with the help of NASA sounding rockets, they'll capture light from those stars that doesn't reach the ground and propel humanity's search for habitable worlds into the future. Yes! Follow along as I go into the outback to show you what it takes to launch a rocket and make groundbreaking scientific measurements. There's a rocket in there. Three, two, one. Hang on tight. We're going on an adventure, high above, down under. And we have episodes three and four. Then we get to hop over the Tasman Sea to Ashburton to hear about their space balls. And finally, we have Skylab 2 medical doctor astronaut to explain what the Skylab project achieved half a century ago. Well, let's head off into it. The Arnhem Space Centre is a new facility on the Gove Peninsula. On last week's The Space Show, Miles Hadfield explained why NASA sent a team of scientists and their technicians to Australia last year. Miles is a science writer for the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, just outside of Washington. Uh, this report is subtitled More Than Just Sunburn. UV light. You might know it as the stuff that causes sunburns, but in fact, it plays a key role in making life possible. UV light is the range of light just beyond human vision. Even though we can't see it, UV light from the sun has fundamentally shaped the planet we live on. Could it be a key to finding other planets capable of supporting life? I know some rocket scientists who think so. We're here in Australia! And we're going to launch some rockets. We're following two NASA rocket missions as they try to understand how stars make the planets around them suitable for life. I'm Miles Hadfield, and in this episode, we're exploring how ultraviolet light can make or break a planet's ability to support life. When we look for planets around other stars and try to assess, is that a place where life exists? We're almost always talking about, does that atmosphere have the signs of life in it? And so that means things on Earth like, do we have molecular oxygen? Does it have ozone? Does it have methane in the atmosphere? These special gases are what scientists call biomarkers, the traces of life we leave behind on our planet. But, Kevin told me, what counts as a biomarker on Earth might not for a planet orbiting a different kind of star. A lot of it depends on how much UV light the star emits, or what scientists call its UV flux. There are kind of two big things that UV light does to a planet's atmosphere. One, it drives photochemistry in the atmosphere. So Earth's atmosphere is a combination of things that happen photochemically and things that happen biologically and then float up. Our ozone layer is a great example. About two and a half billion years ago, bacteria in Earth's ancient oceans had just become the first photosynthesizers. 
In other words, as those little guys broke wind, Earth's atmosphere started filling up with oxygen. Don't think too hard about that. UV light split those oxygen molecules apart, allowing some of them to recombine into ozone. The other one is that ultraviolet light drives what we call atmospheric escape. And that's kind of as simple as it sounds. If the star has enough ultraviolet flux, it heats up the atmosphere. And if the atmosphere gets hot enough, that atmosphere will become gravitationally unbound to the planet and escape. Believe it or not, this happened on Earth too. About four and a half billion years ago, when Earth was just a wee baby planet, its original atmosphere was mostly made of hydrogen and helium. That atmosphere was blown off into space, paving the way for the livable, breathable atmosphere we know today. One of the things we've learned in the last couple of years is the sun is atypical in that it's about five times less magnetically active than typical stars of its age. And magnetic activity is what drives the ultraviolet flux. So just because we have great data on the sun, it doesn't mean that we can take that data and apply it broadly to any type of star like the sun out beyond. That's why Kevin and his team are looking at Alpha Centauri, our closest stellar neighbors. This three-star system is a little more than four light years away. Kevin and his team are focusing on the larger sun-like stars, Alpha Centauri A and B. They're our best chance to measure UV light from sun-like stars that aren't, well, our sun. But Sistine can't do it alone. Another rocket mission is set to launch right after Sistine and would capture wavelengths of UV light too hot for Sistine to handle, so to speak. And members of team number two, fittingly named Deuce, had just arrived. I'd heard they could be found somewhere around here, probably hiding away, hoping to get some work done before we started shoving cameras in their faces. Nice try. Hey, Emily. Hey. Your team, Deuce and, uh, and Sistine, are both measuring ultraviolet light. So what's the difference between the things you're measuring? What are you setting differently? So Deuce measures the extreme ultraviolet, which is a very energetic form of light. And Sistine is measuring far ultraviolet light, so a little bit less energetic, longer wavelengths. And we have a little overlap in our spectrum so that we can actually have a much broader spectrum than either of us would get alone. I see. Yeah. Okay, so like overlap to just check that like, okay, I'm seeing the same thing in that region of overlap as you are, and then we can calibrate together. Exactly. Got exactly. It. I see. Launching a few days apart, Deuce and Sistine will work together like one super mission. The end goal goes beyond Alpha Centauri, and even sun-like stars, to an understanding of star-planet systems in general. Alpha Centauri is the closest star system to Earth, other than the Sun, and has in its triple stars one that's a sun-like star. So we can use that star to see what other stars that might have planets around it look like. What is your role during launch? What are you going to be doing? So I will be steering the payload. You are pointing the telescope yes. and making sure it's yes. aligned on the star. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a big job. Yeah. <laughs> Next time, as we prepare for launch, a look behind the scenes at the space vehicles that will get us there. Vroom, vroom. Now, back to the Arnhem Space Center, where Miles Hadfield is uh, about to tell us about the final test. In the previous episode, we learned that to find planets that can support life, we have to understand the stars that host them, especially the ultraviolet light those stars emit. But to see that ultraviolet light, we have to get above our own atmosphere. And the fastest way to do that is to launch a rocket. We're here in Australia! And we're going to launch some rockets. 
We're following two NASA rocket missions as they try to understand how stars make the planets around them suitable for life. I'm Miles Hatfield, and in this episode, we're going to see what it takes to get a sounding rocket into space. If you ask me, sounding rockets are NASA's true MVPs. Their name comes from the nautical term to sound, meaning to measure. No astronauts here. These rockets specialize in carrying scientific instruments. They take short flights, spending just a few minutes in space before falling back to the ground for recovery. Scientists can then relaunch the same instruments again, and again, and again, adapting them to new purposes. It makes sounding rocket missions far less expensive than other alternatives, and a lot faster to develop, too. Many scientific firsts are achieved with sounding rockets because of their quick turnaround time. In fact, the two missions we're following, Sistine and Deuce, are breaking their own scientific ground. The ultraviolet light they measure could reveal whether sun-like stars throughout our galaxy are capable of supporting habitable planets. To get their instruments to space, they're relying on the experts from NASA's Wallops Flight Facility, who operate over 20 sounding rocket launches each year from locations all around the world. Still, no matter how many launches you have under your belt, there's one wild card that can undo even the best laid plans. Roughly an hour and 15 minutes before launch, we start doing blooms every 15 minutes, and that's giving us those low-level winds. The closer we are to the surface, the more sensitive the rocket is to the impact of the winds. For NASA's range and launcher teams, getting into space is only half the battle. These low-level winds will also affect where the rocket lands. It's a suborbital rocket, so we go up and we come down. I'm required to keep the rocket within the hazard area because that's what we alert the public to stay out of and we clear it, and that's kind of the box that we have to play in. You know, we're trying to aim a point that's downrange this way. We may have to point over here so that when the winds go up, it'll come up and impact there. Using computer simulations, the launch team has figured out exactly how much wind the rocket can take without risking being blown off course. As launch approaches, Brittany keeps a close eye on the real-time wind measurements to be sure they stay within an acceptable range. But it gets really exciting. Uh, in the final two minutes, you will see me and Mike with our eyes glued to that monitor okay. and my finger on the button uh, okay. for my comms. You know, we're the ultimate safety authority. Yeah. It's our judgment call if the winds yeah. are trending out or if that was just a random data point and we can proceed. Once the rocket is in the air, a whole slew of internal systems need to kick into high gear. I caught up with the Sistine science team as they were running the final sequence tests, simulating everything that will happen during the flight. We simulate starting about 10 minutes before the launch itself, and we run through all of the steps you would exactly as you would. And the countdown clock has started. 90 seconds here, where we're about to hit T minus 90, is my favorite part on launch night, which is where they're pulling for the final go. Go. Yeah. Go. Where they're running through all the major subsystems and making sure that everything yeah. looks correct now, because this is the last chance to say that there's a problem before yeah. you're just assuming we're rolling into yeah. launch. First stage would have ignited first, and it's already burned out by six seconds. And then our black rant starts, which is the second stage. As you're launching, you want to be spun up, but then you want to stop that speed yeah. once you're observing. What would happen if you guys didn't stop spinning? Um, would probably be catastrophic. Let's hope that doesn't happen. 
And we prepare for the shutter door to open. Whoa. There it is. So the shutter door opens. Towards the center there, um, this black camera is our star tracker. And so that right now is figuring out where it is in the sky and then driving us over towards our target. There you can see our big primary mirror. And then this kind of X structure you see up front is holding our secondary mirror, so the second optic in our telescope. And now we're hopefully celebrating um, <laughs> or talking about whatever went wrong during yeah. the flight at the same time. Yes. Once the payload has been fully tested and confirmed ready for flight, they bring it down from the payload assembly building to the launch rail, where it will be connected to the motors. This is the last place this experiment will sit on land before it launches into space. As night falls over the Arnhem Space Center, it's time to hope for good weather. If all goes well, we'll soon be high above it. Next time, the thing you've all been waiting for. It's gonna get pretty loud. And we invite you to listen to the space show next week when we'll find out what happened with that. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. On our program of August the 9th, we reported the re-entry of a Russian rocket stage that was seen over Melbourne. In that report, I mentioned the existence of metallic spheres that fell over mid-Canterbury near the town of Ashburton. Now, I have seen one of the spheres at the Ashburton Aviation Museum and will post some of my photographs of this sphere ball, or space ball, I should say, on the Space Show website in the next few days. The Space Show website is space.southernfm.com.au. And then you'd go down and scroll down to the 2023 programs. Well, this discussion about the debris display was conducted by Radio New Zealand two years ago. A number of heavy titanium spheres dropped out of the sky and landed in paddocks across Ashburton. Alistair Perkins wrote in to remind us that one of these space balls my term, is still on display in the Ashburton Aviation Museum. To tell us a bit more about that, I'm joined now by Treasurer of the Ashburton Aviation Museum, Owen Moore. Hello there, Owen. Hello, Jesse. How are you? Good. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm standing here with my hand on the space ball. Great. Believe it or not. Great mental image. Yep. Yep. And yes, Alistair Perkins is a member of our museum and does a lot of work out here, so... Amazing, isn't it? Take us back to 1972. So, uh, 1972, at about 4 o'clock on Friday the 31st of March, the Soviet Space Centre launched a rocket that was destined for the planet Venus. But unfortunately, the attempt failed, and this um, rocket that it had and its payload uh, entered a pretty much a decaying Earth orbit and finally coming down on a track that crossed the South Island pretty much from Manapuri through to Ashburton in that, in, in that line. Uh, people saw the re-entry at about 11pm on the night of April the 2nd, and the next day a metal sphere was found on a Huntingdon farm five kilometres south of Ashburton. Now, as you can imagine, this resulted in a, in a huge amount of public interest, and so people went looking and searching, and over the next 18 months, 
six more objects were found fixed between uh, Lake Aviemore and Ashburton. Wow. And, and so they are all over the... Uh, they, they actually all came to the museum at a time, and there was sort of a quite a gathering of them here, but we now just have the one that is on permanent loan from the Lindors family. Um, and it's pretty much unusual for them to... for these spheres to come down. Normally when something comes in like that, they heat up that much. That yeah. But these, some of them have come down complete. Uh, the one that we have has the uh, fitting where it was attached to the to the actual spacecraft has been melted away, but the sphere itself is in, is pretty much intact, apart from some big holes that were cut in it, or some little holes that were cut in it, should I say, by the DSIR, when they tried to determine what they were. Yeah, so, so the way you tell the story, Owen, is that um, this uh, Russian spacecraft went up and then it crashed, but, but actually when these spheres were first discovered, I presume people didn't know they were from a Russian spacecraft. No, they didn't. No, no. They didn't. But then people would have put together the fact that on the night before or earlier in the week they had seen this big glow coming across the sky and... and um, and I think for a while there was quite a bit of interest in just what they were, and nobody quite knew what what they were. And um, the book that goes with them, there is a book here about them, says that they were moved around the country from site to site for people to test them, but with under police surveillance because you know they could be radioactive or they could be something. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of interest was taken in them, but it took a long time to find all six. It was probably you know 18 months or so before they. And there's probably still more out there could well be more that have just never been found. Wow. Um, what are they? What are these spheres? What purpose do they so serve on the spaceship? Tanks. They're fuel tanks on the, on the... or that's what they believe them to be. Um, there's about 10 or 12 of them go right around the base of this uh, unit, and, um, yeah, they're believed to be fuel tanks. Mm-hmm. And they're believed to have come from... The DSIR um, did quite a bit of work on it. They're believed to be part of the control and propulsion mechanism of the spacecraft, and while the Soviets have not admitted ownership of that, uh, they think, or the DSI uh, think they came from the Russian spacecraft Cosmos 482, which was this spacecraft that was heading for Venus, but didn't quite get up into the air, or up into space, in the space, in a successful launch. Has anyone, because it was a story I heard on Monday, that they um, asked, or they offered them back to the Russians who um, were unable to confirm or deny their existence. But I, I wonder if in the 50 years subsequent, whether you've asked the Russians again, they might be willing to... Um, I believe that they have. I believe that, it's, that it is confirmed that they came from that spacecraft. But we don't have any paperwork um, to say that. But that's how I understand it, that they have, it has been confirmed that they came from that. Yeah, but they haven't shown up looking for them. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> so... no. One of the interesting things we did have was that um, just about um, oh, probably a couple of months ago, uh, a chap turned up at our museum and his name was Dennis O'Brien and he had been the man that worked for the DSIR and did the report on it. And obviously it had lost a bit of interest in DSIR because when he left work, um, he took this report with him when he retired. And so he bought this 300-page report that was all written about them. And so we have all the data... And he also had the bits that were cut out by the DSR to, to, so they could check the metal and decide what it was. So, mm. so we've got a real um, amount of history that goes with this one. How do you value something like this? Oh, well, yeah. So we don't, really. You just have it. And, and, and that's the same with a lot of stuff in our museum. 
um, we have a huge amount of things and planes and aircraft and memorabilia, but yeah, as you say, how do you value it? And you can't really. Does it uh, arouse a lot of interest from museum visitors? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, people, it, it probably does as much as anything. That, that people walk past it and say, oh, what are they? You know, because there's quite a good display goes with it. So, yeah, it does. And uh, how and whereabouts in the museum is it displayed? Uh, so we have right down in the, one of our corners, we have a, um, a diorama of what this airfield looked like when it was a training field in the Second World War. So they trained uh, Tiger Moth pilots here. And so it's just right beside that. And so as, as people walk, walk out from the, looking at the, what the airfield looked like, here's the space ball on a stand right beside it with all its, uh, well, a few pictures around it of all about what it, about it all. Yeah. Are you allowed to touch it? Yes, you certainly are. One of the things that we do in our museum is that we encourage people to touch our aircraft. And that's it's not the same in a lot of cases. A lot of cases, people, you know, they don't, you can't get up and touch them. Thanks for talking us through some of your ex- exhibits, in- including this one with a particularly strange and interesting origin story and uh, extra reason to drop in on you next time people are coming past Ashburn, Owen. Exactly. exactly. And funnily enough, we have a group of people here that have just come to the museum today and they were just standing here looking at this display of our space ball. Good to <laughs> chat to you. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Owen Moore is treasurer of the Ashburton Aviation Museum. Uh, you're only the only place in New Zealand to take a look up close and touch one of these space balls uh, that emerged from Russia in 1972 and somehow found their way to Ashburton. Well, we know how they fell out of the sky. And uh, that report courtesy of Radio New Zealand. And uh, yes, if you are in Ashburton, do pop in and see the metallic sphere that came from the Russian failed Venus probe. And I'll put my photos up on the web later in the week. 88.3 Southern FM. Where you are listening to the Space Show. Now, we heard about uh, things falling from the sky in that uh, last segment and most people if you mention the word Skylab they think of things falling from the sky and Skylab crashed onto our home planet in fact it crashed right here in Australia and well it wasn't meant to do that and most people forget that in fact Skylab 1 was the space station, and there were three missions that took three astronauts each mission up to the space station. Skylab 2 had three people that went up for 28 days, and then we had Skylab 3. And an event happened 50 years ago last week. And that was that a song written by Chuck Morley was played on 1973, August 26th, to the crew aboard Skylab. And the capsule communicator at the time was Carl Hines. And uh, we're going to see if we can take a listen in now to what happened 50 years ago last week. Skylab Control, 1100 Greenwich Mean Time. Skylab 
Skylab Space Station now on Revolution 1513, just off the southern tip of the continent of Africa. Nine minutes to Hawaii. Spacecraft communicator Carl Hinnies. A wake-up call to the crew over the press at uh, tracking ship Vanguard minutes ago. At this time, we will play back that tape. Skylab, this is Houston through Vanguard. Good morning, gentlemen. This morning we have some music for you to wake up by. the oceans far below watching them turning seemingly slow alarm sounds within work shift begins it's time to go outside and start up again in Skylab home In my Skylab home In my Skylab home Ever orbiting peaceful over Earth. Floating out the airlock on my way to ATM Replace all the film Then go back inside again Houston goes by Winking her eye Here comes old soul Gonna lie the sky of my Skylab home Of my Skylab home Of my Skylab home Ever orbiting peaceful over Secrets to help our earth grow, and I'll keep on searching from my outpost in the sky, solving those problems so our planet won't die, finding a place on the Threshold of space Sailing the skies For the whole human race In my Skylab home In my Skylab home In my Skylab home Ever orbiting peaceful 
That happened 50 years ago last week on August the 26th, 1973. Now, a good friend of the Space Show and of the Space Association is Joe Kerwin. Now, Joe was one of the three astronauts on the Skylab 2 mission. That's the first manned mission of the Skylab program. And he had a, a chat with Peter Arwood. The late Peter Owood, his uh, last conversation uh, for the space show, and uh, th- they spoke about the genesis of the Skylab program. By the way, I will just mention here that I'll call, uh, that the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center was already pressing on with a plan to build Skylab, and in between these other things. A couple of us were getting to go there uh, maybe three or four times a month to uh, participate in the uh, in the design process and to do some training. So I began to get into Skylab on a part-time basis that early, and that was priceless. And uh, Joe went on to tell us that he had been quite instrumental in uh, developing the uh, Skylab program and worked on the mock-up. Uh, involved in deciding on the food. Remember, he was a, a medical doctor. All right, uh, uh, Joe, we'll, we'll head back to, to you and what was happening in your world. And this thing called Skylab was uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the horizon and, and you, were, uh, you were a part of it. Yeah, I, uh, you know, finished, up, finished off the, uh, the Capcom duty and went right back now to pretty much full-time work on Skylab. Uh, a typical day would be that uh, uh, PJ Weitz and I would get a T-38 early in the morning, take off from uh, Ellington Field in, uh, in uh, Houston, uh, point the nose to 81 degrees, as I recall, uh, and, uh, and uh, get up to 17,500 feet just under the controlled airspace and then pour the coal to it and arrive in Huntsville at uh, in about 58 minutes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, but, uh, we could get on with a, a day of uh, either uh, meetings, uh, some decision meetings on systems, uh, or uh, of some of these uh, fun early times when we'd go over to their working building and they had a big 20-foot diameter circle and chalk on the floor. Uh, and the divisions, and they were working on, you know, where the different pieces of hardware were going to be uh, 
and uh, we would chime in when we had an idea. Uh, the one idea that they didn't want to accommodate was to, to put a window on it. And we had to work really hard and get some high level help before they would uh, agree to uh, break into the upper stage and put a great big one meter window. Oh, wow. Tell you, we would have died without it. <laughs> it would, <laughs> it's our window on the world. You Indeed. Know, Indeed. 260 miles up. And we did a lot of work in the uh, in the WIF, the water immersion facility, which was a lovely big water tank that some engineers made out of some booster parts that they found scattered around uh, and made into a great big circular tank, got it all outfitted. And then, only then, did they invite uh, uh, Von Braun to help come and have a look because it's slightly illegal to build a building if this was a building without going through all the, the headquarters muck and muck that takes three or four years. And uh, he went and he looked it all over and he looked at the water and, looked at it and he says, I want to get in there. <laughs> and then they had one. <laughs> and so it was a good water facility. It was big enough to hold a mock-up of the entire uh, uh, <clears throat> Skylab. And we spent many hours in there uh, practicing things like recovering the film from the uh, canisters on the Apollo telescope mount. We had all these wonderful sun telescopes and cameras. Uh, that was the big reason for our having spacesuits uh, and, a, and a little airlock on Skylab. Uh, there was no planned maintenance of Skylab. They didn't do any on Apollo, and uh, it was considered unsafe. Well. It got safer in a hurry, uh, but we were all we got all got pretty expert in the suit and uh, and uh, uh, launched many hours. We uh, we uh, often flew uh, did two two or three hour sessions in a day, and when we did that, we had to stay overnight to let the nitrogen wash out of our blood so we wouldn't get bends in the T thirty eight on the way home. But uh, it was good, and uh, and we also got involved back in Houston uh, with talking to the experimenters as well as the engineers on the different systems and getting our our uh, two cents worth in on things like the food system. The uh, principal investigator of the food system was a guy who knew how to do bed rest studies and did them in a, a very uh, controlled way. And everybody ate the same diet uh, all the way through the test and before the test and after the test. So he wanted us to do that. And he knew that uh, you burn about 300 calories a day less in weightlessness than you do in 1G because you're not moving those big muscles as much. Unfortunately, what he knew happened to be wrong. <laughs> and and in, in, in addition, he wanted everybody to have the same number of calories per day. Jack Lausma, 230 pounds athlete, 3,300, 3,400 calories a day. And Alan Bean, a very smart guy, but kind of scrawny. He was like a 1,900 calorie guy. So we uh, we persuaded, we uh, complained to Deke and said, they can't do that. And Deke wrote a lovely memo saying, we were raising astronauts, not stuffed geese. Uh, uh, you've got to fix this and let them eat what they need. Finally, they let us sit down at a table and eat Skylab food for a week until everybody had a uh, an accurate calories per day 
marked, and then they built that much food into our uh, systems. They were very strict. Any food you did not eat or only partially ate, you had to weigh the can to make sure that they knew how much of the food wasn't eaten. So we got together and said, uh, we know we've got a little weight thing uh, here, but the heck with it. Let's make a resolution that we, if we open a can, we eat it all. And we all said, yes, we'll do that. And it was easy because the diets that we were given still had this 300 calories subtracted from them for this uh, supposed lack of need uh, on, on space. So uh, to get to the results, the uh, first crew, us, lost an average of about eight pounds. The second crew who exercised more and got to eat more of the so-called empty calories, candy and cookies. Uh, the cookies were good. Uh, <laughs> uh, they lost a little less than that. And then the third crew finally made the breakthrough where they let them, they added back the 300 calories. And uh, uh, and uh, one of them, um, it was built, no, it wasn't Bill Pogue. It was uh, uh, Jerry Carr. The Marine actually gained a pound in 84 days on Skylab. So over the three missions, we finally got that taken care of. Uh, and uh, let's see, we had the, uh, the, uh, the vestibular experiment, the motion sickness experiment, which was uh, one of the least popular experiments you can imagine. Uh, you got into a rotating chair uh, and you rotated up to whatever your RPM had been defined to be on these uh, on one G tests, which were particularly unpleasant. Uh, what you did was you got in, let's say, seven RPM or ten RPM, and then you did head motions in all three axes like that for as long as you could until you got nauseated, yeah. uh, and then then you got to stop. But there were some occasions when the nausea was followed by the vomiting, oh, and, cool. uh, and so we uh, traveled to Pensacola. That where the PI was, and he was a wonderful guy, and uh, just told him what the problem was, and asked for two things: let's back off from nausea to just awareness that things aren't going right, and until we stopped, and then exempt the com the commander on the first mission, just in case we need to fly back in a hurry. We we want Pete Conrad to not be thrown up, and he said absolutely, and you can borrow my car. <laughs> he's a really good guy yeah well of course uh, yeah, the last three missions that were planned up to 20 were killed off so that made the seat shuffle a bit more brutal I suppose well the uh, the uh, yeah the cancellation of those last three Apollo flights uh, again had a excellent side effect for space for uh, Skylab because the original plan had been to launch Skylab on a Saturn One rocket, which is a two-stage rocket. So you had to use the stage to get into orbit. Then they would empty out the liquid hydrogen and we, the crew, would spend the entire first mission putting things in place. And oh where, where did they come from? Nope, they hadn't even planned on that. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was a terrible system. And when we got a, a Saturn V, it just changed the complexion of the whole program because we got to build it carefully, test it on the ground, and then launch it all in one piece. The Space Association's Peter Aylward with Joe Kerwin, recorded for the Space Show and for the Space Association. This has been The Space Show. 
I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully we'll be back.